Now, it wasn't like the nice people in Philippians didn't have enough problems of their own. In fact, it was quite a nasty ordeal to be a, a believer in Philippi. Already, some of them had started to lose their jobs simply because they were known as being part of Jesus freaks. Uh, it was difficult in the life of the church because there were people from such different backgrounds who had different tastes and different likes. And I like this coffee and I like that kind of tea and can we play that kind of music and all of that. That was all going on. It was a hodgepodge. It was difficult. Some of them were physically suffering. Some of them had gone without, um, uh, uh, would have to go without their jobs or their income. And then on top of that, there's just the normal stresses of life. Some of them had got kids that kicked off. Some of them were struggling to pay the bills. Some of them were... Uh, well, we're just in that horrible situation where they love somebody, but that person didn't love them back. It was full of mess. And so it wasn't like that they didn't have problems, and yet here we find in this passage, as Paul writes to them, right at the start, all the things he could have said, he said, last week, look, God's at work with you, so I'm really excited, of all the things that he could have talked about, he's like a dog with a bone, he's going and banging on about the same thing again and again. And I wonder whether as I've read it, whether you've spotted what it was. And it'd be easy to think that he was being a bit heartless. Surely you need to speak, Paul, as God's apostle, into the problems that I face directly. I want you to tell me how to get over this, 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 and this. And yet look at him, what he's banging on about, okay? Let's just go run through the verses, okay? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me is really, uh, has really served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard to everybody that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, my brother, uh, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. They'll have to do so in love, knowing that I am here, here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing in every way, whether from false motives or true, is that Christ is preached. And because of this, I'm buzzing. That's a paraphrase, by the way. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and with the help given me by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me uh, will turn out for my deliverance or salvation. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now and as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He's like a dog with a bone. What is the big theme? Well, the helpful to see this here is in verse 12, where it says, Brothers, I want you to know that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. That word advance is a military term. So you imagine an army, there's its objective over there. It, if it wants to get its objective, it doesn't just stand still going, duh, duh, what do I do? It, it advances, progresses, moves forward. The idea here is of a force that is moving forward, taking ground, building momentum towards an ultimate goal. And here Paul's saying, loads of muck and mess is happening in your life. Loads of muck and mess is happening in my life. It's busy, it's hard. But guess what? In the midst of it all, the big thing is happening. The advance, the forward push in the gospel, the forward push out to new people, and the forward push deep within us as we take hold of the gospel more and grow and grow and grow in it. And it's easy to listen to that and think, dear me, he's a little bit boring, isn't he? Could you imagine being at a party with the apostle Paul? So Paul, what did you do this morning? I paid to advance the gospel. 
What did you do this afternoon, Paul? Well, after lunch, I went and taught somebody about the gospel. What did you do after you'd done that? Well, I got beaten up for telling people about Jesus. What did you do after that? Well, I recovered, and when I was in hospital, I told somebody about Jesus. Um, and what did you do after that? Well, I planned, planned the sermon for Sunday so I could tell everybody about the advance of the gospel. And you're sitting there thinking, oh, did it go? He's a bit of one of those, like, boring people who's just one track. Yeah? But before you think too badly of him, think about yourselves. No offence, I've been at parties with you lot, you're just as boring. In fact, if you're a fella, you've basically got your conversation down to three things. Football, Xbox, or the nice new shiny car. Or if you're a woman, you've got your conversation and your life boiled down to just a few things. How work's going, how kids going, and who's wearing the nice clothes. You're all boring. But here, Paul has actually got something that he's on one track about, that he's worth being on one track, because this is why, when it's all hitting the fan, you can still rejoice in this. When the football's hit the fan, don't rejoice. We really? really look at Liverpool, did we? Lost one nil to Stoke yesterday. Oh, my kids, I don't know what. You have it in blue nose, turn coat. Anyway, uh, or if you, you know, if it's all oh, well, my kids, oh, my kids are kicking off. It's a nightmare, and you're rejoicing. No, but here, everything's hitting the fan, Paul. He's rejoicing, he's rejoicing, rejoicing because what he has got as the big one thing has got a sturdiness. It is solid. It is unlike anything else. In fact, next week we're going to find that if he gets killed for doing it, it's like, yay! Brilliant! That's next week. We all built something up and make it the big thing. You know that. We talk about this week in and week out. But I just want you to notice this word that we've got. It says honour here in verse 20. Can you see it there? He's, about, he's facing, he's in jail in Rome now. And he's under uh, house arrest. Or probably, no, he's more sturdy arrest than that because he's in chains. And he's facing every morning the possibility that when he gets up, it will be his last day. He will be eating his last bowl of cornflakes. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now and as always Christ will be exalted, or in the ESV, honoured in my body. Which means magnified. Okay? So what's the big thing? He wants Jesus to look big. No, 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 no. Think magnifying glass. Okay? What is a magnifying glass used for, particularly if you're, I don't know, a teenage boy? What would you use for a good teenage boy in magnifying glass? Burning insects, yeah. Okay? So what you, yeah, okay, yeah. what you do is you concentrate onto that thing. A little bit different to that, perhaps I'm thinking. What you do is you take something and you use your magnifying glass, and as it goes near, what happens is what you're looking at in there appears or is seen more clearly. Do you make it bigger? But actually what the magnifying glass does is it helps to show more clearly the detail, the intricacy, and all of that of what you're looking at. Paul here is saying, listen, in my life and my death, and wherever I am, and whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm at, wherever I'm at, I want the bigness of Jesus to be seen. Because I tell you what, we live in a world with eyes that just don't seem to focus on it. I can't make Jesus bigger. I can't make him more magnified. All I can do is I can show him more clearly in the words that I speak one to another, in the way that I live and the way that I act. And as we're going to see, in the way that I actually respond to situations that come in my life will show people around me what is really very valuable. You get that? So how is it, why is it that he has seen, where is it that he has seen the bigness 
of the Lord Jesus. And there's two situations that he talks about here. And I want us to look at both those situations and show how he has seen the bigness of Jesus. And then I want to come back and just bring two or three things to you about how that will impact the way we think about the forward movement of the gospel. Okay, let's read verses 12 to 14. That's somebody, would they mind doing the reading for me, please? Somebody read that for us. On your lap. 12 to 14. Okay, so what's happened? Remember, Paul is now locked up for speaking about the Lord Jesus. But you need to remember who Paul is. He is like the, the chief gospel messenger around the world. He's the leader of the church. He's their top apologist. He's their top preacher. Okay? And here are the Philippians. They've heard that he's banged up. And they're really quite worried. Because surely the wheels have come off. You know, you wouldn't put this in your plan, would you? Maybe God's not quite as powerful as we thought. Why on earth would the Lord God allow his chief gospel preacher to get blocked in jail? Doesn't say much for the rest of us. If the Romans can get one over on us Christians merely by locking somebody up, well, maybe the gospel that we believe isn't quite that strong and quite that big. And Paul hears the worries coming through Epaphroditus who delivered the letter, and he writes back to them, and he wants to say, listen, you're looking at this, this situation... You're seeing the same thing, but you're seeing something totally different. Let, let, me, let me take the same situation and look at it from the angle of knowing that God is the Lord. That he's big. And what does he say? Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really, actually, unbelievably, served the advance of the gospel. I know it sounds as if this would be a dead end, and locking up the chief missionary would be the way to stop the movement of the gospel forward. But quite the opposite. In fact, it's actually served to get the gospel moving forward. How? Two ways. Verse 13. As a result, me being banged up in prison, look what's happened. It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now, you don't know about the palace guard. The palace guard, in fact, if you've got an ESV version of the Bible, it might say Pretoria. The Pretoria were like the elite guard of that belonged to the, the, the Roman Emperor Caesar. Okay? You know, like we have the Gestapo, who were Hitler's right-hand men, who were ruthlessly loyal, many of whom would offer their life, or some, many of them paid with their life because of their loyalty to, the, the, uh, to Hitler, or i.e. to Caesar, to the Emperor. And they were grubby, they were battle-hardened, they would have been away maybe decades on campaigns, they were determined to, for the glory of Rome. They were determined to uphold, if anybody sort of knocked Caesar, they would be there to squish him flat. And so imagine this. Paul sees the Praetorian Guard up in the castle over there and says, hmm, how can I tell them about Jesus? Because they need to hear about Jesus too. So one day, he decides to pull out his little Bible, okay, and he marches up and he knocks on the big gate and goes, hello, my name's the Apostle Paul. I'd like to tell you about Jesus. I know you're not going to come to my church, but we'll give it a go anyway. What's he going to meet with? What's he going to meet with? Get lost, Sonny Jim. They grab his wife fronts, rag him up round his ears, kick him down the street and send him back in. How is the gospel ever going to get to the roughest, toughest men at the centre of Caesar's house? Not that way. 
Our God's quite clever and quite big. So what he does is he causes Paul to be locked up and he puts the most convincing evangelist the world has ever known in the prison chained to guards on shifts of four-hour shifts with four guards each. And can you imagine what they talked about? After they've given him a beating, there's the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, what's your name? What do you want to know for? Just what's your name? Bob. Dear Lord, Prophet Bob here. I know he's beating me and trying to give me hell, but I pray, merciful Lord, that you would rescue him from hell as you did me. I used to live for something else too, and yet your mercy came and found me. Please would you have grace on Bob? And they so they beat him a little bit more. And he kept on praying for Bob and Bill and Archie and all the others who turned up. And then the word started to go, man, this guy, Paul, he's different. He ain't done anything wrong. And we don't know how much we beat him and treat him badly. How much, how much we deny him food and take his clothes off him so he's, he's chained naked to us. No matter how much we humiliate him, he wants us to know about Jesus. He loves us. Maybe there's something in this Jesus malarkey. And, Jesus, and one day Warren goes and says, Paul, tell me a little bit about this. I can see you've got a hope that I haven't got. And he says, oh, I thought you'd never last. Let me tell you, I used to be like you. And then Jesus reached down and found me in my sin, pulled me out, and made me his very own. And word gets out, so it says in the Bible, God's word that does not lie, set, it was either seven or 9,000 Praetorium guards, it says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard. You see, this is the power of our God. At the times when you think he's down and defeated, he's actually winning. And this is a pattern of our God. So he doesn't need it to all be right and in place for him to be to work. This is the pattern. It's, it's not that he works in spite of the struggle. So often the place where the seeds of the gospel grow are in the midst of the difficulty. Here's Paul chained to stuff. And from one vantage point, it looks as if everything is lost. But when, our, when you see how big our God is, nothing is lost. And some of you are sitting there and you feel chained. I'm chained to this situation. I'm chained to bad health. I'm chained to awkward kids. I'm chained to a bad job. I'm chained to a neighbour. I'm chained to my own inability. I hear Helen talking about gifts and I wish I had more and I seem to have nothing to offer. It seems and all looks hopeless. That's brilliant! Because you're chained there, put there by God so that in that place where you are, you can speak for him and he's in the midst of that, that he's in the middle of Caesar's house look at this my favourite verse in Philippians amongst all the others look at flick over to chapter 4 verse 20 the, the fourth from last oh no oh, sorry verse 22 the second from last verse all the saints send you greetings especially who? who are they? they're the soldiers who've come to faith because our God is massive. Why does Paul want to magnify the Lord? Because he's seen how big he is. Nothing's going to make getting away from God's gospel going forward. Not your inabilities, not my failures. In the, uh, I think it was the 1700s, there was a, a Bible teacher by the name of uh, Matthew Henry. And he talked about God being the ultimate successful alchemist. Now most of you are like, what? What's alchemy? Okay. Back in the Middle Ages, a vast quantity of brains and money was spent trying to take lead, which was a useless resource to many people back then, and to turn it into something valuable. It was heavy. So what they'd do is they'd try all kinds of scientific hocus-pocus magic and take 
this lead and try and take it into something, you turn it into something useful and beautiful. They would try to turn it into gold. And they tried 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 and they managed it. And here Paul can see that God is the ultimate alchemist. Because he can take an empty, dull, hopeless situation and turn it to gold. That is how big our God is. What's leading you to be despondent today? Don't you dare bring God down to your side and say, God, this is the This is the Lord who can transform any situation and mean the blessing for you and for others can come out of it. Have you noticed, though, how so, so often difficult situations happen to some people and it sort of frees them and they become... Well, they just grow through it. And other people, well, when it happens to them, they seem to shrink and atrophy through it. What's the difference? What is the difference of making sure you're one of these people where difficulties and struggles seem to come your way and it looks hopeless? You grow and when difficulties and awkwardness come your way and you shrivel, what's the difference? The difference is how big you realise God is. What's your reaction? In fact, so often in the Christian life, our faith in Jesus is not just shown by our actions in the midst of situations, as much as it is, but so often, and our kids spot this one, don't they, it's our reactions in the midst of situations. Do you get that? How do you react when things hit the fan? Do you think, oh dear, this is absolute disaster, nothing good can turn out of this, or, I know the Lord, and his plans and purposes for his advance of the gospel and his blessing of all his people and his uh, glorification before the nations are unstoppable. I don't know quite how it's going to work, but wow. And so in May, Jane Campbell found herself chained by a drip to a bed. And what did Jane do? She could have thought, oh dear, put on the eel face. But when she's chained to the bed with a drip, she thinks, oh, that must be here, because the Lord has a plan in it. So she looked at the person in the bed next to her on that side and that side, and she told him about Jesus. Is that the way it's supposed to happen? Of course it is. Of course it is. And in fact, I bring this example up at the prayer meeting, and James like, I can't wait for my, my next life-threatening illness. I wonder what he's going to do next. This is our God. He's big. He's massive. And as people do that, look what happens in verse 14. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been co- co- uh, sorry, encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. You see that there? There was uh, five missionaries who went out from Wheaton College in the 1950s. They went out, they were pretty much the cream of the crop. The Wheaton College, the Bible College, these were the top guys. These were the future church leaders. These were the future movement leaders. And they went off to try and reach um, some uh, natives in Ecuador with the gospel. And it was pretty much the first day they were all slaughtered. And people back home were like, why would the Lord do that? What a waste. Those were our leaders. And it was tragic. But one of the unexpected outcomes of it was for the next ten years at Wheaton College, the number of people putting themselves for overseas missionary service went through the roof. You wouldn't have expected that on the day those guys were getting slaughtered. They saw those guys going and being got bold for the gospel. They looked and said, well, what's the worst we can do? Kill us and send us to heaven. Oh, what a tragedy. I know. I'll go and speak about Jesus and see what happens. I'm bold. Have you noticed in the book of Acts, what's the prayer that all the believers pray? 
Those are, uh, well, the big one is, please just give us boldness. Help us to see your bigness so we don't mind going and putting our neck on the line for Jesus. Kosh played a great prayer a minute ago, didn't he? So please help us to be sensible. But sensible is sometimes spelled R-I-S-K. Do you get that? And in this book of Philippians, I want you to go through at some point and count the risks that he encourages them to take. Why? Because God can do anything. Some of you need to step out and take a few more risks. Even before the end of the day. In fact, before, you know, promise the Lord now, before the end of the day, I'll take a risk for you. I'll dare to say something to somebody. I'll dare to serve somebody. I'll dare to go and apologize to somebody. I'll do something because I know that God is big. What else does he know? Well, he knows that God is big and he is the Lord over all things. He knows that the Lord is enough as well. Look at verses 15 through to um, 18. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put there for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that I can st- uh, they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So what's happening is somewhere in Rome, while he's languishing chains to these guards, there's sort of some leaders in churches, and it happens, and it's there. Um, They're circling. They're thinking, this is an opportunity for me to make a name for myself with the big master, big poor. He's incapacitated. Oh, darn it, somebody will have to step up. And so in some way, which is, uh, in the NIV it talks about selfish ambition, it's actually rivalry. Something here is going on and they're thinking, oh, great, I can get ahead. Now previously, in Paul's previous life, this would have murdered him. You only need to read chapter 3 to to realise that his old life was all about his reputation, his name, his status, his pedigree, his performance, and if anybody sort of knocked that, put that under threat, he would... Literally, go and try and kill him. So when Christians came along who were preaching about Jesus rather than follow the Old Testament law, and because he lived by the law, that was the most precious thing to him, he went and tried to kill them. He got letters to give permission for him to go and kill them. If somebody threatens my status, my reputation, my name, kill. And here, something's changed. Because now, he's like, do you know what? They're stirring up trouble for me and they're trying to make a name for themselves. And the way they're doing it is by using the name of Jesus and preaching about him so more people trust in him. What the monkeys do I care? Because my name, my status, my reputation, my acceptability is no longer on the basis of my position or something I do. My acceptability and my reputation has been achieved for me by Jesus. He knows the worst about me and forgave my sins. He has declared me all right with God. Nothing those guys can do can touch me. In fact, the more they preach about Jesus, the more that just gives me what I want. This is wonderful. Because Christ is the big thing for me. Because I've made it made acceptable by him. Because he gets the gospel, he can rejoice. And that's so important, isn't it? Because sometimes it's hard when you're out and you're trying to serve the Lord Jesus and there's other people who are working just as hard as you and they get more con inches don't they? Or perhaps you don't get noticed. Or perhaps somebody's so busy welcoming a newcomer into the church family that you get, don't get the usual kind of welcome that you normally do. And you can come 
Only if you've forgotten that Jesus accepted you and said that first and foremost, I will never take my eyes off you and I've given you everything you need. I've made you right with heaven itself. Now actually, you can rejoice when you see other people doing that. Do you know what? The gospel's going out. The big thing. Isn't that wonderful? You see, at the end of the day, Paul could exalt in Christ because he saw that he was Lord and he was Saviour and that made him as safe as houses. And so all he was excited about was to push out the gospel. I want more and more people to know it. I want more and more people to taste it. I suppose we could put it like this. When you've tasted what Paul has tasted, when you know how big the Lord is, and you know what he has done for you in forgiving you of your sins and giving you a new identity and setting you on the road to glory so that it is untouchable by anybody, when you've tasted that, what happens in you? The advance of the gospel becomes precious, doesn't it? It becomes dear to you. So actually when Steve starts to speak speak about it on Sunday morning, what happens is a few things to start off with, you're like, yeah, I really want this. I want this. And that's at work in you. Another response is, oh, I'm, I'm gutted that this hasn't happened more. That's an authentic response. If you're sitting there and thinking, oh well, I suppose there's another thing to add to the list, then there's a possibility you haven't seen how big the Lord is, and how deserving he is, how worthy he is, and how amazing and free is his salvation to us. It tells us what it means to live the Christian life. Living the Christian life is an encounter with the preciousness, the bigness, the, the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it says that in probably the key verse of Philippians, which we haven't read yet, but which John wrapped for us earlier, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Go on, John, wrap it for us again. Our life is nothing, but Christ is also... See what that means? Conduct yourself worthy of his righteous call. Conduct yourselves in a manner. What does it mean? Conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. Some of you are looking at that and freaking out, going, oh, yeah, I've got to try really hard and make Jesus uh, and sort of do, be really good. Not quite saying that. It's saying, live your life in such a way that you show the worth of Jesus Christ. Do you get that? You live worthy of him. You, everybody looks at you and says, Jesus is worth it. I wonder as people look at our church family, would they look at us and say, whoa, their Jesus must be worth a lot. What about with our kids? They look at us and go, oh, mummy and daddy, they're a bit of a crank here and here, but I tell you what, their Jesus, he's big. He's big. Because they live in a way that shows his worth to people. That will be found in the way we speak and the way we act and the way we react to things. I was really humbled when I read this a few years ago. And some of the theology is a little bit wonky, uh, but the point is still true. Um, some of you still read the Times newspaper. Matthew Paris is still a columnist in it. And in 1994, uh, he uh, wrote an article, and it appeared, uh, he used to be a member of Parliament, by the way, but it appeared in the Times newspaper, and this is what he says. The New Testament offers a picture of a God who does not sound at all vague to me. He sent his son to earth. This is all right. I'll tell you when he says something. It's not going to be right. But anyway. He has a distinct plan for each of us personally and can communicate directly with us. We're capable of forming a direct relationship individually with him and are commanded to try. We're told that this can be done only through his son. And we're offered the prospect of eternal life and afterlife in happy, blissful and glorious circumstances if we live uh, this life in a certain manner. I.e. if we trust him. Yep. Happy so far? Friends, he says to all the Times readers, 
If I believe that, or even a tenth of that, how could I care which version of the prayer book was being used? I would drop my job, sell my house, throw away my possessions, leave my acquaintances and set out into the world burning with desire to know more and when I found out more to act upon it and tell others. How is it possible to be indifferent to the possibility, if one believes it to be a possibility, that a being of this order makes demands of this order upon you and me and that in 30, 20, 10 years, perhaps tomorrow, well, we shall be taken from this life and ushered into a new one whose nature will depend on our obedience. Far from being puzzled that the Mormons or Adventists should knock on my door, I'm unable to understand... This guy's not a Christian, remember. I'm unable to understand how anyone who believed that what is written in the Bible could choose uh, to spend his waking hours in any other endeavour. And what would the Apostle Paul say to the pagan? Amen! Only eternity is going to show us up for how we use our time and our lives. See, being a Christian isn't just a ticket to heaven. It's not just merely to satisfy my new interest in spirituality. It is a call to be part of God's initiative in the world. And what a glorious initiative it is. So very briefly, just, I need to, I'm just going to give you two outcomes of this, okay? Two very quick outcomes and I'll finish. Number one, this is a call to have a reshaped life. What I do in the present affects the progress of the gospel. So I need to ask myself every day, how are my choices whether about big things, about life choices, or just the way I respond to people, how are my choices impacting the progress of the gospel? So let's say I'm in a difficult job and I'm getting loads, loads of abuse and stigma, maybe for being a Christian, or maybe because I'm bad at my job, or maybe just because life's tough, okay? And I'm there and I think, well, I want to do what's best for me, so I'll get out. But what I'll actually do is I'll think to myself, well, maybe I need to think this through. Is it that the Lord has put me in that job to grin and bear it and to speak about him? I'll ask that question. I don't know what the answer is, but I'll ask it. What about when I'm responding to things that people have done? What's the number one way in speak that we respond to when we feel that an injustice has been done against us? We blab. We moan and groan and run people down and bitch about and say all kinds of horrible things. And you don't mind when it's all just about you because you're protecting your reputation. But when you start living for the glory of God and his reputation, what you do is say, if I say that now, that will make Jesus look rubbish. And he's more precious to me than my reputation. So I think I'll keep my gob shut. Gob shut. In fact, I won't keep my gob shut. I'll go and pray to the Lord about it instead. He doesn't mind me talking to him about my difficulties. I'll do that one. It affects the things that we'll do with our time. This is incredibly important when it comes to our kids as well. Because some of you, your biggest prayer and your first prayer of the day is, Lord, please let my, my kids come and know you. It means that if you're bothered about the forward pro- outward progress of the gospel within your families, you'll realise that just saying gospel truth to them is not all you've got to do. You've got to live gospel truth in front of them. Why? Well, because kids will much more clearly not pick up on what you say, but what you're excited about. You may have a Bible time with your kids in the morning, which is absolutely great, but spend the rest of the day cheering for Everton, as if Everton are the, you know, the only thing that are around, or cheering for, let's go shopping, or whatever it is, and at the end of that day, I guarantee, will you tell me, which one of the messages will your kids take away? Will it be what you've said with your lips but ignored the rest of the day, or what you live with your life and got exuberant and excited about? Which one will it? Kids aren't stupid, they know. So this forward press of the gospel 
tells us to ask questions about our life. And some of us here, we need to repent of devaluing the gospel by sort of making it merely a thing that somebody else does or I think about on Sunday. And finally, quickly, this is the one that really gets me. It's a call to single-mindedness. There's some things that are good things that we could spend our lives doing, but actually get in the way of the gospel. It means that if you're going to stand for the movement of the gospel forward, you can't do some things. Good stuff. Good stuff in life. You just can't do it. Now, I really don't want to believe this. I want to believe that I can live all out of the gospel and be a world-class athlete. Uh, we enjoy taking our kids for triathlons and doing races and that kind of thing. And yesterday... Um, they did quite well, they've got potential they could by now be competing for not just the city but the whole region, the whole of the northwest. but all the competitions are on a Sunday so I've got to explain to my kids that they cannot live for the gospel and be part of a family that lives for the gospel and be nationally recognised as triathletes so I'm sorry, there's no choice don't care how fast you can run around a track what, matter, what does that matter in eternity? You cannot both rest and turn up at a prayer meeting at the same time. You can't. You can't set your priority. You can't do both at the same time. It means if we're going to be living for the progress of the gospel, the moving forward of the gospel, you can't do everything. You have to make choices. And your life will actually be defined a lot more of the time by what you say no to than what you say yes to. Because what you say no to will elevate what is most precious in your lives. And we're at the beginning of a new term, and I want to call on you just to think and pray and say, Lord, I'm not expecting anything drastic here, Lord, but perhaps I need a course correction. Perhaps I'm over-optimistic that I can live for all these things at the same time. But what I really want to do is be saying, I want my life and the situation, Lord, you've put me in, around the people that you've put me in to be living for the advance of the gospel. The gospel pushing out there and mean know more and more of you in here. And that's what he says here, doesn't he? In verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and with the help of the Spirit, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. As I face all of this and try and face it and go, go hand in hand with you, Lord, towards the future, it's going to mean salvation and newness in me. I will know more joy, more grace. I'll be more ready to meet you. And the things of this will become more dim. And I'll just be able to look around and say, well, that was empty, that was empty. What was I living this for? And I'll be able to struggle standing firm for you with you with me. And I'll bring people with me. And at the end of my life, I'll have had a legacy. So as I finish, I'll tell you about a nameless lady. Um, she had a really... Uh, she was elderly. She had a debilitating illness. And she lived on a street with the mum of P.T. O'Brien. P.T. O'Brien is one of the leading Bible scholars in the world. He's even written a commentary on the book of Philippians. Uh, Countless thousands of pastors around the world have been equipped to preach sermons on Philippians to do what P.T. O'Brien has studied and done. And before he was studying and doing that, he spent 10 years being an overseas missionary in India. Loads of people have been affected by him. How did he become a Christian? Well, because his mum had taught him the gospel. How did she become a Christian? Because that old lady who had a debilitating illness down her street and was suffering and struggling, she kept a cheerful disposition. And no matter how bad her situations got, over a period of time, 
she'd always be upbeat because she knew that all was well with her soul. And that made P.T. O'Brien's mum ask the questions. And eventually P.T. O'Brien's mum realised that she needed the same saviour as that dear, dilapidated old lady had. She put her trust in Jesus. And the result, in the Lord's hands, is thousands built up in Christ because of it. Why don't we all pray today that we'd be that little old lady? That we'd have the excitement that the Apostle Paul has for the spread of the gospel. That we'd be used in our generation for him. Let's pray before we sing two songs back to back.